0: Full transcripts are available via the Data Collaboration Alliance blog at datacollaboration.org.
1: Hey, so my name is Carrie Letting, and I'm the Data Protection Contrarian, and I just wanted to welcome you all to the first inaugural episode of the Data Drop Panel, uh, hosted by the Data Collaboration Alliance. So each month, I'll be sitting down with privacy pros, data mavens, transformational technologists, and anyone I can find off the street um, to talk a little bit about deep dives into the pressing issues around personal data, including data protection, transparency, and perhaps most importantly, ownership and control. So you might be asking yourself, okay, what's the Data Collaboration Alliance and why should I listen to yet another privacy podcast? Well, the Data Collaboration Alliance is a Toronto based nonprofit and they're dedicated to building a future where data is fully controlled by its rightful owners. They're guided by the hashtag access not copies. The Alliance does research into data ownership and control into best practices and they also offer some really cool free training on the data collaboration approach. They also produce the Data Drop podcast, which offers listeners a weekly news roundup and also this monthly panel. So we'll be sure to include links in the show notes. We hope to make it worth your while by offering insightful analysis, good verbal repartee, and you know, good discussion of pressing topics and privacy. Think of this as sort of a non-partisan version of William Buckley's The Firing Line, and here I go dating myself there. <laughs> so with that, let's go ahead and introduce today's guests. First up, we have Dan Demers. Um, he's based out of Toronto, Canada. He is the president of the Data Collaboration Alliance and the CEO and co-founder of Synchi, the world's first autonomous data fabric. Next up, we have the lovely Sarah Clark who's based out of, and I know I'm gonna say it wrong, Teesside, (laughs) Northeast England. Um, Sarah Clark is a data protection and cybersecurity governance specialist working for her own firm, Infospectives Limited. Um, Next up is Jeff Jogesh from Port St. Lucie, Florida in the US. And Jeff is the CEO of Privacy Plan where he does independent data privacy research and creates privacy-centric data sets. So that's the panel. And we have three topics for today. The, The first step is we're gonna talk about vaccine passports. And then we're gonna go talk a little bit about Apple's new app tracking tool. And finally, if we have time, we're gonna talk about the latest of one of many Facebook data breaches. All right, with that guys, let's kick off. So the US, EU, UK and numerous other countries are all rushing ahead now that we have vaccines and they want to get to a point where they have a, a functional system for actually tracking who has and hasn't been vaccinated. Proponents of these so-called vaccine passports argue that certifications will help reopen open economies safely for those who are fully vaccinated but many folks in the privacy sector especially have concerns about scope creep and privacy abuses. A few days ago, the UK announced that they would be rolling out a digital certificate vaccine passport via their NHS app, which is already used widely to arrange doctor appointments and includes access to patient medical records. Meanwhile, the EU has announced plans for a slightly more subdued version called the digital green certificate, Which would track vaccine status and whether someone tests negative for COVID-19. And in the US, of course, there's uh, IBM's efforts working with various states, including New York, to develop a digital health pass built on the blockchain. So the European Data Protection Supervisor states that a vaccine passport must not allow for and must not lead to the creation of any sort of centralized database of personal data at an EU level. But beyond that, there hasn't been a lot of guidance and there certainly isn't a lot of legislation around this issue. So I have a couple questions for you panelists. First things first, and come on, let's be honest here. How many of you are going to sign up for a digital vaccine passport?
0: Well, I'm going to start kick off and say, um... Unless I need it, unless I need it to travel, and depending on where it creeps into in terms of controlling access. Um, I, I will attempt to avoid doing so, um, because the, it's the, the push for the um, COVID app to push it into the um, Google and Apple basis so it was decentralised, At the point that happened with the COVID app in the UK, I was incredibly supportive of it. The people who were involved in it were people who I knew were good people. They were sharing impact assessments um, and it it wasn't um, this evangelical zeal of let's just get it done. And and suddenly there was some constructive information. I, I haven't got that with the intent of the data being gathered centrally. Um, right. for, through through this specific process, and it's not that they haven't already got our NHS records. I don't. I have absolutely no issue for a direct purpose that has got a public health interest. What I don't have is clarity about limiting it to that. Right, right.
1: And the NHS app in particular, I've read up into, and it's uh, it's a little concerning how much overlap that they plan to include. And you know, there there's some kind of weird things that I've heard about biometric data and, and other things, and it's like, oh, that one, that one strikes me as a little dicey. But what about, what about something like the, the more uh, EU kind of passport, where it's a digital green certificate, where it's literally just yes or no, I've been vaccinated, or if I haven't been vaccinated, I am negative for COVID-19.
0: If it's limited to those purposes, if the data is minimized for, for purpose, it's all about the purpose. And it's all about making sure it stays that way and it's secure while it's happening that way. And we, we are very clear about um, all of those things. And there are, it's more than just um, assurances it's contractual and it's the third parties have also covered off in those, in those same ways, then I would have far less issue in in that case. Yeah. And for me, it's uh,
2: a very similar perspective of, Uh, My my own only concern really is does this set a precedent uh, that the world rushes into that uh, facilitates the eventual expansion of scope (laughs) to the point where, uh, you know, what about other vaccines, Uh, what about, um, uh, you know, kids uh, proving that they've been vaccinated within school uh, and does it stop there? Does it go beyond that and cover your entire medical history? And, uh, and uh, that's where we just need to be really, really careful. But for myself, uh, as, a, as a one-time use for a very specific issue, uh, um, and potentially even setting a bit of a precedent for such issues, which don't happen all that often, uh, I think is, is the only way that it's going to actually work.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. What about you, Jeff? What do you think?
3: Well, I don't love the idea of a digital version of a passport for, for COVID. Um, I do think there are reasons to do it and there are certainly a lot of reasons not to. Scope creep is, is a definite concern. Um, <clears throat> I think sort of on the other end of the spectrum, people that are, that are banning COVID passports, um, I've got a problem with some of that, right? And I think if you're, if you're banning passports because you're, you're trying to look strong for your political base, uh, you're are probably just a demagogue um, trying to support the same people that won't wear masks now or or perhaps get vaccines for any kind of illness. Uh, so I've got a real problem with that. But you know, in terms of supporting vaccine passports, I think there's certainly some reasons to do it. And and I would I would be definitely in support of a vaccine passport if it was administered by a, a nonprofit agency that I trust, right? And, mm-hmm. If it had to be a centralized database, I'd, I'd be much more happy if it was in that kind of, kind of an organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and frankly, I'd be much happier if it was a, a paper uh, passport, you know, rather than a digital passport.
0: The,
1: the old school way of doing things. That's what they did before and during the 1918 uh, pandemic. Yeah, right.
3: I mean, I mean, it's working with yellow cards, you know, yellow the, cards. Yellow exactly. Cards. So, why can't we try that if we're going to have to do this? Um, And the other thing that I think we need to really be careful of is if we're going to put um, vaccine passports in place, I think we need to be very sure that there are rules against discrimination, right? Right. Or, you know, people who need to have access to essential services.
1: Right, right. No, I I completely agree. In fact, I think that the the discriminatory aspects are very are very interesting and they really aren't being discussed as much as I have a very firm position on vaccines, but you know, I I don't think it's necessarily right in the same end to say, um, you know, there's concerns out of Israel, for instance, where they've, you know, cut things off, they cut services and, and access to things off to people who can't or won't get vaccinated. Right. Um, and, and yeah,
3: you know, and I'm not trying to say that 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 people that won't get vaccinated should you know, that I want to support that behavior, right? But I think there are probably reasons that some people can't get vaccinated, right? Right. Like they've got a valid reason, a life-threatening illness, uh, maybe a religious persecution or something. I'm not going to try to decide who has a valid reason or not, but I think there are valid reasons.
1: Right. So here's one as a follow-up, Jeff, because, because, you know, I I can't get away with asking something about the blockchain and not pinging you about it. Um, so what do you think about the IBM digital health pass and putting this information on the blockchain? I am deeply skeptical because <laughs> I find everything on the blockchain, most, okay, not everything. A lot of things on the blockchain are, it's, it's, it's sort of like the old adage of like, what happens when you add digital to you know <laughs> problem X? Well, then you have digital problem X. Right. So in my opinion, sometimes, you know, adding the blockchain to it means you just have a new problem on the blockchain. (laughs) But but prove me wrong. Tell me, tell me why I'm, I'm, I'm too cynical.
3: I I like it in theory, but uh, you're right. In practice, I don't know whether it would work. So uh, I would have to look into it more. And I don't really know that that all the details are out there yet that would make me a believer.
1: Should we put this on Cinchy, Dan?
3: (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, it, uh,
2: what I would say, though, is the the eventual standard of zero copy integration uh, would be very appropriate for this. Whether it was on Cincy or not is, is a separate thing. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, yeah, like our my viewpoint is that uh, the only way to ever get control over data, be it uh, your vaccine records or anything, is that. Uh, the owner of that data has control over that data and that data is treated as if it had value like other assets, like intellectual property, people and, and money where you can't create copies of it because it's the, the copying that creates the risk. Um, uh, so definitely this would be in scope for zero copy integration.
1: Makes sense. So my last question is, um, Sarah, do you think it's possible to have kind of a user centric or user-focused vaccine passport initiatives? Since you're skeptical of the the current crop of things going on, you know, I guess the question is, how do we apply vaccine passports or kind of vaccine record keeping fairly and ethically?
0: Well, I, I'm not an app designer. Um, But there are incredibly creative people who are designing software in this space and I don't see why we can't follow um, a a decentralized record if it's just a fact of vaccination or not. Why does it need to be linked to your unique identity? Mm. Um, Certainly people could be given a unique code associated with confirmation of their vaccination status that is only um, uh, put back together with anything resembling a medical record in in the protected back-end systems that are not, don't have to be shared with third parties it's just you know is is this a valid pairing of an alphanumeric string and a positive statement of vaccination Mm. Um, uh, and if I in my position with a little bit of technical knowledge enough to be dangerous can say that and I've got people like Jeff nodding along suggesting that it's probably feasible and talking to people like Teres Eden who were working well no I haven't spoken personally but from what I understood from his kind sharing around the nhs covid app Mm. or the covid app um why not why shouldn't we and they specifically rejected the covid app as a candidate for the vaccine passports because it didn't allow them to get centralized storage of data
1: yeah yeah i i am genuinely deeply worried about uh some of the uk stuff but that's a different conversation i don't want to get into another brexit debate (laughs) So we'll move on to topic number two, which is Apple's new app tracking tool. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, Apple released its new app tracking transparency privacy protection framework as part of its latest iOS 14.5 release. I don't have an iPhone, so you know I follow this, but I'm not. I don't have any um, dogs in this fight, I guess. But the aim of AT- ATT is to give users direct control over how downloaded apps track users across websites and third-party other-, other third-party applications. If users opt out of tracking, developers will be stopped from accessing the user's identifier for advertising, which is a, a unique Apple identifier, um, and that-, that allows for that sort of a tracking kind of mechanism to occur. ATT allows users to opt out device-wide, which is kind of interesting, um, or on a per app basis. But it also requires developers to refrain from sharing information with data brokers, which I did not know until I started looking into it. So there's a question, um, there's no question that ATT gives users a tremendous amount of transparency and control. It's kind of, it follows along with their there are other initiatives like the, the privacy, you know, um, food labeling that they're doing and the, what Google is doing there. Um, but of course, you can't have any good thing without lots of criticism. So many people, including, you know, media outlets, the internet, and various internet companies and and advertising folks are complaining. Most notably, Facebook released a huge anti-ATT campaign complaining that ATT would, destroy small businesses who rely on Facebook advertising to promote their offerings and, you know, generally create the downfall of man. (laughs) There's also been a couple potential lawsuits that have been roaming around and a few antitrust complaints that have been filed. So people are genuinely concerned. Still privacy pros have lauded ATT as a good next step, And there's definitely some signs that uh, users are actually getting a lot out of this and finally maybe able to get off the treadmill of always on tracking. So in fact, there's some reports that are even suggesting that opt-in rates um, for for this tracking are as low as four to 13%. So that is a huge impact on third-party advertising potentially. All right, so the questions for you guys. First is Apple controls nearly 20% of the worldwide mobile market, according to IDC. Do you think that this will force a similar transparency effort or hastening of Google's own kind of uh, privacy sandbox initiatives? Um, or do you think it will encourage you know, app developers to change their tune and how they're developing apps and the kinds of things that they're tracking? Let's start with you, Dan.
2: Yeah, I think the, uh, first of all, I, I think the trend towards this is actually uh, uh-huh. inevitable and, and highly predictable. I think the uh, the business model over the, the past number of decades where I'm going to uh, trap and uh, monetize your your data is, it stays our numbered. It's just a question of of when. Uh, so it, it is just the inevitable future. Uh, I think what this is actually going to do is, is actually just drive awareness to the general population uh, that they should be, uh, that this is uh, possible, uh, also giving... Better transparency into the fact that how it worked even before this. And you'll find just uh, consumer demand uh, will shoot through the roof where people will expect this, not only of, of other uh, mobile devices, but just devices in general, to the point where I would anticipate this eventually uh, mature as a, as a standard, uh, such that your uh, connected oven that you buy in the future uh, has uh, mechanisms that uh, uh, have the enablement of you to have control over this. Um,
1: Although the pop up the pop up window for what your your connected oven is going to be sharing with the world would probably horrify me to be honest, but it would be a, definitely a good step, no question. <laughs>
2: well, if you think about it, it's going to know when you're home. It's going to know what you eat. It's going to know, uh, uh, you know, it's going to know what it needs to know to tell you when dinner's done. <laughs> but that's true. Uh, that's going to go through the internet, and uh, that information can be correlated with other information. And uh, if you use the oven, you know you could you could blame the person who buys it and turns it on uh, for basically giving it access to this information because it's it, it's putting food into the oven. Therefore, now the oven knows about it. Uh, but is it really their fault? There you can't uh, inspect every device that you interact with. You need to be able to trust the machines that you interact with. So whether it's whether it's your mobile phone or your oven or your coffee maker, you need to be able to trust that. And right now, you can't. Uh, so I, I think the uh, the enforcement of this um, as a consumer demanded uh, standard will be will become the future. So this I think is just the beginning.
1: So it sounds to me like you're saying that this this is actually going to encourage good behavior. I'm forever skeptical because it's always one of those situations where. Um, you know, you, you come up with a new set of rules and someone comes up with a new way to break those rules in a new way, you know, it's like fingerprinting or any of the other kind of weird on-device, uh, identifiers. So Sarah, do you think this is actually going to lead to a change in behavior or you know, do you think that uh, this might just end up in lots and lots of litigation and appearances before various, you know, competition authorities in Europe or other regulatory bodies by Facebook and Apple and all those other guys?
0: So, yeah, I, I like the awareness raising. Um, the challenge I did raise, though, is um, I don't see that um, this 97% failure to opt in is any more representative of a choice as previously people um, being opted in invisibly and failing to opt out because it's all happening in that first fear of missing out. I want access to this thing. I want to have this conversation moment where you interact with a new app. You've downloaded it. You want to use it. You've Mm. seen a, a notification you want to get online. So while I think it's a good thing, because I am a, I ha, as I have on my banner on Twitter, um, privacy and security by default and design, mm. and this is the by default stuff, and also since I've been so rigorous opting out of everything on the internet, making my life an absolute misery going through 75 pages of eBay, third parties when I have to be on there, you know, oh. Um I'm, I've got such a vanilla web page these days when it's a nice third party. I am actually opting back into first party cookies because I want to see what they're advertising to me, what their latest deals are. So there is a positive other side of this. But I do have to question with this that until we actually have situationally relevant just in time notifications of what you're potentially sharing at a particular point in time, how, how much awareness there can really be. And until we've got some kind of collective bargaining available to people around use of their digital identities, I also don't see a way forward. I don't see that we can lean on individuals to actually cause the step change necessary. And the third point I'd like to make is um, how many more data points do we think these companies actually need to be able to put together a reliable profile for us to use for whatever purpose they choose? Right. Um, it's right. what they've already got that kind of bothers me in many ways and the data subject rights if they're ever enforced as hoped for is kind of, and that point I made about potential future collective action on this front is is where that's where that comes in.
1: That makes sense. So Jeff, what are your predictions on the impact of these efforts, you know, and it's not just Apple, Like, you know, ATT is very, it gets a lot of buzz and it gets a lot of news. But these initiatives, like Dan has mentioned, are are coming. You know, these are things that people are already starting to think on the horizon and already developing tools around. I mentioned Google's privacy sandbox. I know Mozilla is doing a few things in this area, so this is not new. Um, but what do you think these impacts, these, these these efforts, will actually do in terms of companies that make their living? Through advertising and tracking, and then selling their data to data brokers. Because I know you're kind of a uh, big on focusing on data brokers.
3: Sure. So I think that I think the data brokers are eventually in, in for a rude awakening, um, and also a lot of the ad tech then, Right. Mm. Um, I think that Facebook's probably wrong that that uh, that small businesses and medium sized businesses and large businesses are going to see much of an impact in this. Hmm. Uh, they've got enough data to be able to target and target pretty well. Uh, I don't think they're going to really see any drop in conversion rates. Uh, there's plenty of research that that points to this. Right. Uh, a lot of the research that points the other direction is from those ad tech middlemen, you know, that say that you need, uh, you know, the the kind of behavioral targeting that 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 they provide.
1: Or it's from Facebook. <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, I mean, there's certainly contradictory, uh, contradictory evidence, but I, I think that it's not going to have a whole lot of impact. It, that's my assessment, right? Mm. Um, but I think the the bigger picture here is that the tech platforms have a whole lot of control over this situation, whether that's the the Apple ecosystem or the Google ecosystem, or you know, other ecosystems that that influence this, and to some extent they have more control than governments have over the direction of privacy right now. Mm. And while there's probably some concerns in terms of antitrust, um, and in terms of how much power they wield, they are having a positive impact on consumer privacy right now. And I think that that is a net good for us, at least as a first step. Right.
1: Oh, I completely agree. Yeah. I completely agree.
3: And then so, we've got to figure out how we 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 reel them in eventually. But I think that the 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 silver lining there is that their interests are not aligned. If you look at you know Apple versus Google, for instance, right? Apple doesn't make its money on ad tech, and Google does, right? Uh, Amazon doesn't really make most of its money on ad tech right? their they're product sales, right? Even though right. they do make money on ad tech. Um, but if you look at the big tech giants, right, uh, Microsoft doesn't really make it their money on ad tech, right? So you can really play some of those those players off against each other in these coming battles over privacy.
1: Now really really good really good points. but I want to uh, move on a little bit because we have one last topic and this one is near and dear to my heart. For bad reasons um, so over 533 million users data was recently leaked in April um, and posted for free on an online hacking forum yay the leaked data include phone numbers Facebook IDs full names gender relationship status locations birth dates BIOS and potentially even email addresses so and this came from Facebook and and that's the that's a problem um, it's Kind of important to me because I was caught up in this breach. Um, despite the fact that I no longer had a Facebook account when my account details were hacked uh, or when it was part of this breach, um, I'm a little pissed because and I, you know, I deleted my account. I made sure it was gone, but Facebook didn't delete it. And more importantly, they had my phone number, not because I wanted to supply it, but because I wanted to turn two-factor authentication on. And they pinky swore that they were only using that for security. Guess not. Um, So that was a problem. And more compounding this is the fact that Facebook's approach has been to downplay the breach, which is number 11 by my counts. And I actually did the count. Um, And that's not including the breaches of WhatsApp and Instagram, which are also owned by Facebook. In this case, they're classifying the breach as just a regular old scrape of old public data. They refuse to notify data subjects directly and even have been kind of jerky to the various supervisory authorities in the US and in Ireland where I'm based. So questions for the audience. First off, this is a quick one. Were any of you guys also affected?
3: Yep, I was.
0: No, I wasn't. I I think I did it my account in time, or I managed to swerve adding my phone number. That's smart.
2: And I haven't actually checked, so I need. <laughs> I deleted yeah. my account a long time ago, and uh, I was a fool to uh, assume that it was deleted. <laughs> so. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I had to have it because I, for a period of time, I worked at Facebook, and mm-hmm. so you have to have a Facebook account when you work at Facebook. I had this crazy idea in my head I was going to change the world. Anyway, <laughs> that didn't work. So. Facebook isn't alone, unfortunately, in this new approach of casting these kinds of breaches, these leaks of data as scrapes and not a formal data breach. And I think that they're doing that in part for legal reasons because there's no law that says that you have to necessarily report a data scrape. (laughs) Um, But while I think it's partly regulatory and legal, it also seems to be a way that they're using to shift liability and limit the severity and impact of the breach itself. Um, and and they're kind of trying to condition us, I think, to make these things seem normal. Like, yeah, it just sort of happens. I don't know, am I wrong? Am I overly paranoid? What do you think?
0: Sarah? I, I'm inclined to believe what you believe, Carrie, actually. Um, I mean, I come at this very much from a different position than a lot of the sort of developer types that I mix with and that kind of thing, which tend to be stateside. which tend to have a, an attitude oftentimes, uh, what are you bleating about? It's public data, so it's, uh, so it's fair game. Um, and that, that isn't the point. I mean, I've always come at it from a direction that I provide data to people for a particular purpose, to enable a particular thing as part of my interaction with them. Uh, the argument is always that, yeah, yes, I'm the product. I, I knew that. Um, I accounted for what I was getting from them in the exchange. I didn't account for them then um, making it easy for third parties to take it and do what they, they liked with it. And it isn't as if they were helpless in this. If they could mm. close the gap in 2019, there was a gap to close. Right. And um, I, the rules within the GDPR are that you need to have controls that are commensurate with the risk, and you and that is usually expressed as being controls in line with your own policies because your policies should be an embodiment of the controls necessary to mitigate for the prevailing risks. They knew this was a possibility because they'd had numerous similar things happen before.
1: And they'd had numerous people already reporting this similar particular yes. breach from this contacts thing. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So yeah. so there is a a a lack of duty of care or a lack of care about their duty one or the other
1: hmm. yeah. i don't know what, what do you think dan
2: so sadly i think the your point earlier around how this is um maybe conditioning people to uh, assume that this is just normal is is actually true because it actually is normal <laughs> uh meaning this is it's not going to stop happening. Uh, it's going right. to continue to happen, and as uh, more and more of our inner monologues are digitized and uh, and uh, persisted and copied, uh, there's going to be more and more availability and access to that that we don't want. Uh, it's an unstoppable phenomena. the The only way is is uh, is to basically change how we think about data and and the the whole access, not copies thing. That's, that's Mm -hmm. the only way, even that doesn't eliminate it, uh, but, uh, it dramatically minimizes, uh, because, uh, in, in this scenario, like you entrusted, uh, one particular organization with uh, a copy and, uh, it's that copy that was breached. Uh, uh, and, and that's the problem is, um, that that's the only way that this will ever stop.
1: Right. And a fair number of these breaches, like I said, I did a a, a timeline as part of a a bit of research with Digital Rights Ireland, because they filed a a recent um, uh, mass action. They don't call them class actions over here, they call them mass actions, but uh, they filed a recent mass action against or they're planning on filing a recent mass action against Facebook for this very thing. And we just looked into the data. And it's horrifying the amount of copies, the amount of the amount of cases where this data was shared with third parties who had just insufficient security controls or no security controls. And they left their databases open on Elasticsearch and you know, or like an A- Amazon bucket somewhere. You're like, what the hell? Like, what is going on? You know, why are there no controls? Why is there no enforcement? Why is why are we in this dance again with the co-? and and I think the multiple copies and the. fact that it's way too easy to just share information Mm -hmm. and that kind of old school method is really um, the thing that
2: and and even if organizations wanted to minimize that just the uh, there's technological constraints on why they do that Uh, so even like if, if people knew how many times your phone number or your email address or your net worth or something is actually copied not only across organizations but even within an organization like uh uh, I used to work in, in financial services and big banks and, uh, you know, 10,000 systems and how many of those don't need to know anything about their employees or customers that most of them do. So it's it's not that all data is copied everywhere, but it, uh, every piece of data is copied many places within an organization and across organizations. Uh, and uh, every one of those copies is just waiting for someone to uh, to access it. Uh, there's no way to assure uh, protection of, you know, Thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of copies of, of, of my name <laughs> or my phone right. or, or my yeah. address.
3: Or, it's impossible.
1: What do you think, Jeff?
3: I mean, I think Dan's right. You know, it's a, it's a problem with the copies of the data. Right after the Facebook breach, I started getting more phone spam, more SMS yeah. spam, more email spam. Right. Yep. And, and, and I know it's Facebook, but how the heck do you prove that? Right. right. You can't. Um, you know, and, and to Dan's point... Um, I give an example in, in my data broker presentation where, you know, students uh, have signed up for uh, like a sweepstakes to win $10,000 and, you know, they submit some information about what schools they want to go to. Right. And in that one example, their data gets copied to five different organizations, including three data brokers right? just from one interaction. Um, and they
1: don't know, of course, because never. there's no one ever sharing this, inf- you know, sharing it there. Right.
3: It. I mean, you know, they say that, you know, I'm sure there's some disclosure, right, that they click yes on, right? But it mm-hmm. doesn't say that it's going to be copied five times rather than just once, right? But that happens every day with every piece of information we share with somebody, right? Because right. there's no control of the copies.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. You know how
2: they talk about all this growth in volume of data? <laughs> Guess what that is? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's just extra copies of the data all over the place. The 8,000 versions of the same Excel exactly. spreadsheet, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, if you can get rid of the Excel spreadsheet, my friend, you're doing God's work. Anyway. Um, so my last question on this, on this topic, before we wrap up is, you know, uh, of course this led to an, uh, a renewed interest in regulatory response. The Irish DPC, actually responded very quickly this time because it turns out like three of the people in the data protection commission in Ireland had their accounts leaked. <laughs> Oops. <sighs> Same thing with the European Data Protection Board. Good times. Um, but you know that's great. And it's great that they're starting investigations and launching things. But really in practice, this has happened before as well. There's been multiple investigations brought by the ICO, brought by the US, um, um, FTC, brought by various countries all over the world and nothing really has happened. There's, there was that FTC action that actually led to something meaningful. But my question to you guys is, do you think it'll change this time? Do you think anything positive will come out of this to actually smack Facebook into changing their policies, or is this just a a groundhog day and we're going to repeat ourselves again?
3: No, I don't think anything's going to change in a major way, though I do think that some state legislators are starting to wake up to the fact that their data breach legislation uh, is completely inadequate, right? I mean, because not one of the 50 states in the United States can really go after Facebook for this breach, because it doesn't meet the yeah, the uh, the, Doesn't the data
1: requirements at like you know financial data or government ID or anything like
3: that right. or you know is it is it public data is it you know is it right. classified as piI you know um, almost all those those definitions are are not met uh, based upon how those those statutes are written and uh, and they're old and they're outdated
0: yep no, I agree uh Sarah, what do you think Oh well, um, the FTC five billion was caveated with indemnifying them against any breaches that happened before um, I think it was twelfth of June 2019 yeah. so they being a bit vague about which breach these were from, I suspected may have had something to do with that.
1: Yeah, um, but
0: <laughs> I think the the changes will be by proxy um as if somebody stops them acquiring the next best alternative to keep acquiring data or impacts their intermediary layer of brokers because that is at the moment is a self-sustaining machine there's enough data seeping around to service that that intermediary role which is really a, a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of revenue generation and mm. um, if that ceases to become a useful way to operate then there may be a sea change who knows but I can't see where it's coming from right this second. All
1: right, Dan, as the chairman of this established organization, this lovely organization, I'm so, gonna leave you with the last word.
2: So uh, sadly, until uh, the, uh, the technology changes, that makes it uh, impossible. I, I don't see this changing anything. Uh, in fact, I, I think, like I said earlier, it's going to get increasingly frequent and, and uh, uh, so- society will have to decide whether they accept that or reject that.
1: And on that kind of somber note, I wanted to wrap up and just talk really quickly um, about, um, about the initiative that we're working on here. And I of course wanted to thank all of you for coming and being on our, our inaugural podcast. But uh, a lot of us uh, in this room here are, are working on a project called um, the Information Ownership Network or ION, And it's a little bit of a sandbox, a little bit of a toolkit, a part professional networking organization that will hopefully be a little bit more nice than LinkedIn. And more importantly, it uses the DCA Dataware platform, which is contributed um, by our partners at Cinchi. So yay, it's a really cool tool. And uh, the Dataware platform gives us a lot of user ownership and control over what we create. And since we're still in the starting phases of the ION initiative, uh, we're always looking for fresh ideas on what to build, what a world of zero copies means, and you know what full data control actually might look like and how to continue to advance the privacy tech landscape for the better. So to all of our listeners, we'd love to hear from any privacy compliance technology, security pros, anybody who's kind of passionate about this subject, we would love to hear any good, you know, thoughts about how we could use a tool like the the dataware platform to do this. And if you have any thoughts, please feel free to come check us out. It's at the uh, datacollaboration.org forward slash I-O-W-N. That's again, datacollaboration.org IOWN. And thank you guys so much again. The Data Drop is a production of the Data Collaboration Alliance, a non-profit
0: dedicated to advancing meaningful data ownership and democratizing IT. Data privacy, data protection, and compliance professionals should
1: check out IOWN, the Information Ownership Network. The Alliance also provides students and mid-career professionals with free learning in data-centric skills via our Learning Zone. To learn more about the Alliance and these initiatives, visit datacollaboration.org.